we suggest to all of our partner corporations to come into Howard Business School and make your presence known. And by that, I mean invest in our culture, understand what we do as an institution, understand what our students need, and then go back to your companies and try to build an environment that's going to welcome our students. Twenty twenty stopped us in our tracks. Now we have an opportunity to come back to work in a better way. Can we leapfrog into a new and better way of working? And in this opportunity to create a more balanced and joyful workplace, can we also create paths for more kindness, humanity, fellowship, and justice? Welcome to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, managing partner and chairman at Carney. This season on Joy at Work. We'll talk to people who are using a joy mindset to move all these needles to create real and lasting transformation. Today, I'm welcoming Anthony Wilbon. Anthony is dean of Howard University Business School. He's joining us to talk about what life has been like as a university leader over the past year, and in particular, how we can build more successful diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and his aspirations and vision and hopes for Howard alumni. So first, welcome Dean Wilbon. Glad to have you. Thank you, Alex. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Obviously, 2020 was a crazy year, tumultuous. What's it been like for you the last year as a leader? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, of course, my days are longer. <laughs> it, it's certainly that, whirling right out of bed and going right to my office in, in the house and, and working all day. Uh, so the lines between when work starts and stops has certainly been blurred. We've had some very interesting changes in, in terms of the day-to-day work life for faculty and students that we had to do a very quick pivot to prepare our faculty to teach in the online environment. Some had been trained to do so, others had not. And so we really had to to do a quick pivot to make sure that they had all the tools they needed to do this successfully. For example, we had to deal with things like how we're going to do exams with the students. We had discussions about whether we're going to require students to turn their cameras on, for example, in these virtual classrooms, which were challenging because as an instructor, teaching to a series of black boxes on the screen is totally different than having a classroom where you interact. And then, of course, again, the, the mental health aspect. We increased the amount and the number of counselors we made available to students to deal with those crises. And the university was very good about investing all of that up front to make sure we address those issues. Now, at an individual level, how did you find those moments of resilience and happiness and joy for the people that count on you, and including yourself? What were some of the things that you had to do to get through it all? I like to use humor. I think it's important that we use humor to kind of break down the walls when we're in very tight crisis type situations, but it's been difficult. For example, when we're doing meetings, I try to create in my faculty meetings a a more collaborative environment, whereas if we were in a face-to-face space, there would be a much more kind of directive from my perspective or maybe even passive learning or, or hearing from the other folks. But I tried to create environments that were more collaborative, which means more breakout spaces, more opportunities for people to engage with each other versus just sitting in a sterile environment listening to someone talk. Try to be more flexible with the work time, of course, because everybody's juggling a lot of things. I have people who still have kids at home that they're trying to manage their schoolwork and and also do work. So you have to be flexible when somebody's cat walks across the camera and not take that seriously or those kinds of things. So again, humor has to be part of the process if you're going to create and enjoy with the faculty, the students, and the staff. 
I will tell you one funny story, a true story. My daughter, is a, she's just started a job as a fourth grade English teacher in California. And you were talking about the environment, the cats walking across. You've got, she, <laughs> she, had, she had like parents sitting next to their kids doing the homework for them and yelling out in the background, you know, it's an adjective. It's a verb. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, come on, this is, uh, okay, all right, that's good family support, but it's not going to work in this environment. And it allows the teacher to see what the student is looking at on their screen. It's called Gold Guardian. And she told the kids, and these are like 10-year-olds, right? She said for the first time, okay, well, I've got this software that the school system has allowed me to use, which shows me what you have on your screen. So all the, immediately her faces look up at her like, what? What happened there? And then she pushes a button and the screens disappear. And the kids are like scrambling, like this is like, you know, the world, the asteroid just hit the earth or something. And then the smartest kid in the class looks up on Google, how do you disable Gold Guardian <laughs> on a computer? Anyway, I mean, there's, there's some moments of joy in, in, in a virtual environment, even a teaching environment. Higher education is under a lot of stress. Any general thoughts, Tony, on how higher education will change or what do you see in the business school, for example, as a result of this? Of course, I think there's going to be a more dependency on technology, which means that we're going to have a much more technology literate organization across the board. Students, staff and faculty, they're going to have to come up to speed with how to utilize technology to make themselves more efficient and more effective. One of the things that we have to be careful about, though, is you have to recognize that technology is not the answer to everything. We still have to focus on having effective and efficient processes. You can't just put a technology in place if your process is broken, because now you're just going to have a faster broken process. So we have to look also just how we can re-engineer and reimagine processes. But a lot of things are going to be changing with how we address work and how we determine what work is. As I've talked about many years in some of my classrooms, the focus has to be on results and output versus input, right? We can't be tracking people's time and seeing who's going to be sitting at their desk and all that kind of stuff. So you really have to change your focus and it's forcing people to do that on well, what are you giving me as a work product? What is your output? What are the results? And some of the old school managers are going to have to adapt how they evaluate people. And of course, just even from the basic sense, the infrastructure of the classroom is going to be changed because we're going to have to retrofit with more technology that's going to allow us to do kind of this hybrid learning space where some people will be in the room and some people will be on televisions. Of course, we're going to have to retrofit for the pandemic and social distancing and those kind of things, at least in the short term. So those are some of the immediate changes. But I think long term, some of these things will hold and will continue as we go into the future, even beyond the pandemic. This is interesting about the linkage between technology and processes. I'm assuming that maybe some of the budgets have to be adjusted, right? More on technology, maybe even higher levels of spending. How do you get the funding, the teacher, the faculty capability up to snuff for this hybrid world that you're talking about? Because it seems like there's a lot of disruption. The university has made a significant investment in this. There are some HBCUs who are certainly not as well funded as Howard has been. But fortunately, we've seen a lot of philanthropists come in and give uh, major investments to some of these institutions to help with some of this. You know, the McKenzie Scotts of the world and other folks have made significant investments. You know, they gave us several million dollars. They gave Morgan State and Spelman and Morgan 10, 20 million so these are going to be used, I think, to invest in things like infrastructure or bringing some of these institutions up to speed to handle some of these crises. I know Howard has been working on retrofitting several of the classrooms to include some of these technologies. And I think that's the only way we're going to succeed because technology is with us and it's not going away. And I think this environment has proven that we can do work without having to be in the same space. The teachers seem to be in the middle of all this, how they put it together. Can they update the curriculum for higher education and other sectors? It's been a transformational period of time. 
uh, moment, even a movement in certain ways, to get to the future. And everyone needs to adapt, like you said, the faculty, the students, the administrators, and the philanthropists. Want to pivot now, Tony, to the topic of diversity generally in society and also how it affects the workplace. What have you seen from that intersection of employers who are looking for talented staff, recruits, and students who are looking for great jobs on this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how that affects the way they look at the opportunities? Of course, that's been on the forefront of many companies' minds. But in order to make this pipeline work, we have to have companies come in and understand what we do and invest in what we do. So we suggest to all of our partner corporations to come into Howard Business School and make your presence known. And by that, I mean invest in our culture, understand what we do as an institution, understand what our students need, and then go back to your companies and try to build an environment that's going to welcome our students. We do not like for students to go into companies and after the first year, they realize that the place is not welcoming. They're not providing the opportunities that they suggested that they would for advancement, and the students are just considerably unhappy. So we we have to have a working relationship, a team relationship with companies to make sure that we're preparing them with what they need, but they're also giving our students what they need in order to be successful. And so I think that's important when we start talking about any kind of diverse pipeline. It has to be a joint effort that we all work together towards. Having that long-term partnership and relationship is so important, right? It's a win-win. You have a better sense of confidence that the people who are entrusting their tuition and time at your school are going to have a good experience and a, a range of opportunities to choose from. Any other advice besides that? Howard School of Business puts a lot of time and effort into building programs that are going to allow our students to develop themselves, not just in the classroom, but on some of the kind of the social aspects of working in corporate spaces. So, for example, we have a 21st century Advantage program we've had for years. And that program is kind of a combination of a retention program slash corporate advisory program. So there's a lot of focus on social skills development, how to introduce yourselves, how to do presentations, resume development, of course, and interview skills development. And that's all a corporate sponsored program. So the companies come in, there are about 25 companies that sponsor this program and they adopt a team of students. So they're working directly with a team of students for an entire year to develop the skill sets. And so again, that engagement on a regular basis allows these companies to see these students from freshmen, see themselves develop these students, work with them so that they can position them for internships and eventually full-time employment, but also gives the students an opportunity to work with these companies and understand what they do. And in some cases, be ambassadors for the company into the future for the next class of students or even students across the campus. It can't be a, we're going to come in, we're going to drop some flyers off and do some career sessions for a day and then go away. That's not going to help us solve the problem of building these pipelines to get these students into leadership positions in some of these companies. Well, I like the way you describe it, Tony, because you're coaching up, if you will, your colleagues, the students that, and even the faculty to their next level of success and potential. And you're also coaching the partner companies who are coming in externally to make sure they raise their game. Now, you're also at an intersection, a unique intersection, I would say, around this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I would like to hear from your perspective the lessons you've learned in interacting with all these stakeholders, external and internal, on how you really have sustainable change on DE&I. That's a, a very good question, Alex. And let me preface it by saying we have a lot of alums who are in these spaces who have been hired as chief diversity officers in similar types of positions in companies in various sectors. In my conversations with them, some have done it very 
very well, but many have not invested what they needed to in order to make these chief diversity officers successful. And by that, I mean, I've had people say, okay, well, they hired me in, but they didn't give me a budget. They didn't give me staff. I had no access to the senior leadership. And those kind of things, it begs one to kind of think whether it was a PR process or some other kind of thought behind a serious investment in this. We have to create an environment, I think, where diversity is taken seriously and that the conversation around race and gender and sexual orientation and disabilities are open discourse across the entire organization. And that starts from the top, I think. The senior executive has to be on board with this and they have to make the investment not only in the infrastructure, but in the training, creating environments that people have open conversations and are not penalized or made to feel bad about their positions and make sure that that's embedded in the environment. Now, of course, you want to have you know a zero tolerance process around bias behavior, but use some of those incidents as learning opportunities as well as teaching opportunities to make sure that everybody in the entire organization is bought into this process of diversity and see the value that it brings to the organization by having different perspectives in rooms when decisions are being made. So I think that's critically important. And some companies are doing it quite well, but others really, quite honest with you, are not taking this as seriously as they should and think that just putting a senior executive in place is the answer. And that's not always the case. It's all about fundamental commitment, authentic commitment to the change. What I found at leading a global firm is that you do have all types of folks from every diversity, right? It's geographic, it's religious, it's cultural, and a lot of it is hidden. Like you mentioned, disabilities or mental composition, et cetera, introvert versus extrovert, something as simple as that. And everyone needs to feel that they belong. And the role of the leader, especially in a diverse workplace, has to be to create that environment where people are safe and supported. No question. Again, there's a value proposition that needs to be made here as well. And that is that when executives at your level are making decisions to avoid making major mistakes, you need to have different perspectives in the room. We've heard a host of companies who've gone out with either marketing campaigns or products that were insulting to some population or another, whereas you just have to imagine if there was somebody in the room to say, that may not be a good idea, whether it's a transgender person or an African-American person or Asian person, disabled person, somebody would say, okay, maybe maybe we should rethink this. And it was very apparent that there was nobody in the room to tell the person because it was, it was a classic snafu. And so there's a value proposition that I think that uh, people need to be aware of and really engage in. Well, it's a good leadership lesson too. I've heard it uttered in different ways, but I mean, everyone has a blind spot, even leaders. And if you don't think you have a blind spot, that's probably your blind spot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the great things about your job must be graduation. What are some of your hopes for Howard alumni when they graduate? What do you define as success for them when they leave? My definition of success for them is that they find their footing and what they enjoy and they do that well. Because I think what I've determined over the last few years is that everybody's not going to or, or may not even be interested in climbing the ladder to the corporate space. We have students who are interested in entrepreneurship. I have students who are interested in nonprofit management. So my sense is find what you believe is your purpose and what makes you happy and go do that well. And so we're trying to kind of reimagine what that looks like with even within the School of Business. So we've been training students to get into corporate spaces ever since our existence, 50 years now. And so we do that very well. But now we're trying to provide a little bit of flexibility by allowing students to consider opportunities around entrepreneurship. We're providing seminars and workshops and bringing in entrepreneurs to talk to students. I've brought in different different certificate programs around nonprofit management and fundraising in that space. So again, my hope is that the alum go on to do great things wherever they decide to go, but make sure that they're happy in doing it. I think that's a great lesson, which is, you know, you self-define your success. You run your own race. And if you're doing what you love, then you will love what you do and be successful. The other lesson I give to our recruiters, because obviously talent is our game and it's a 
It's a high attrition business because not everyone stays in consulting, for example, or professional services for that matter. But I always tell our recruiters to always look for people that are better than you because they're not too hard to find. You're going to be humble enough to know that there will be people that you interview that will never join you, but they will go on to do great things that you will be amazed and tell people, oh, I interviewed that person. I remember that person was great. Or I did recruit that person. Now they're leading this or that. And just, you know, it's a game of uh, relay race to the next generation. It's very, very, you would not imagine the joy of having a student come back 5, 10, 15 years later and they're doing these great things and they come back and they tell you. you know, I remember the story you told me when in my classroom on this particular topic and I took that and I ran with it and I made it a career or you were one of my favorite instructors. So to see is, again, you see this growth within these students who go on to become executives somewhere and you just can't imagine the influence that you have on them. So you're right. In a company like yours where the turnover is significant, everybody's not going to be a star and everybody's not going to stay. But you can have an influence on what they do after they leave your organization. And they may come back and contribute in some other way to what you're doing. That's just a great story when you're in your profession and get someone to come back, you say five, 10 years and say that you really made a difference, Dean Wilbon. I think that's got to and it just it's a big your heart beats faster it's amazing now one thing that's interesting i wanted to chat about because i know that you've got a really great innovation there the small business development center at howard can you tell us a bit more about that yeah, we've had um, a small business development center at Howard for a good 40 years, I think. And it's uh, funded by the SBA. We're actually the small business development center for the District of Columbia, but it's housed within the School of Business. And so we consult and provide information to small businesses and entrepreneurs in the local community and kind of help them build themselves as a business and give them the resources and the tools they need to, to be successful. And I'll tell you, this has been a big challenge with the pandemic. It's been very difficult because, as you know, we've lost a lot of these small businesses uh, and some of them will not survive or come back as a result of this pandemic. And so we believe there's really a need to focus on developing these businesses and particularly their infrastructure to ensure that even after this pandemic, that they build something that's going to allow them to be sustainable. You know, for example, we received a lot of money through the CARES Act to support small businesses, but we couldn't get this money to some of these businesses because they had no banking relationships that were allow us to get them to them. And when they did, some of them may not have had P&L statements or balance statements, or they didn't have an accountant or an attorney to advise them. So there's a basic infrastructural process that needs to happen with small businesses to ensure that they can be sustainable and can survive under very stressful situations like we've had in the last year. And it's been unfortunate to see some of these folks. We know they're not coming back. And some of it may be as basic as, for example, creating a website so that you can pivot for, for a restaurant and put your menu online so that people can see what you offer and be able to order through Uber Eats. And some did not have the capacity to even do that. So it's been a learning experience for us. I think we may have to be more proactive in reaching out to some of these firms and getting them on board, but it's going to be challenging for a lot of them. Sounds like you're really making a difference at the grassroots level for people and companies that really need it. You know, we talked at the outset about joy at work, which seems like a distant concept in such a, a year like no other. We also have individual tough times over the years too. As you look back over your career, any worst moments you'd like to recount? Personally, I think that one of the biggest challenges for me has always been juggling work, family, hobbies, and, and trying to maintain balance. And so I think where I personally and other people have been challenged and had struggles is when you got out of balance in one way or another. So I've had jobs, again, I was in consulting for a while, so I had jobs where it was a very focused on climbing the corporate ladder. There was a lot of travel, a lot of being away from family, and that has an impact. And so you have to kind of figure out a way to bring that balance back in place. This particular pandemic environment has 
created other imbalance issues because you're not only juggling your work, but your family and everything is in one place within your home. And that creates a whole different level of anxiety and issues. So again, what I would say is my biggest challenges and my worst moments always revolve around lack of balance in my life and figuring out a way to balance all the things that I've done with work, hobby, family, friends, relationships, career, all of that stuff. Having that right harmony and integration and balance is so key. It's also all the more challenging in this environment where you've got your work stress, your individual stress, right? And then you've got the larger social community topics. This is a world of social injustice and outrage, transformations of a different variety. I'd like to hear your thoughts just as a fellow colleague and human about how do we reckon with all this crazy stuff going on, especially on the racial injustice side? Can we get reconciliation? Is there light at the end of the tunnel here? Well, I mean, there's there's always hope. I don't think anyone wants to give up hope that cannot be addressed. I think the starting point, for me at least, would be a more expansive and honest and sincere conversation around these topics. And I think that requires us to really embrace the history of this country as it relates to race and inequity and injustice and really embrace it and understand it and be honest about it. Some of the things that have kind of grown and become or blown into be big issues in the last year are addressed because of the fact that we've kind of ignored our history and tried to minimize it as it relates to race and inequity and injustice. I think we have to embrace it and have conversations about it. And everybody on both sides of the table have to be honest about that. We can't be in denial about how horrible the history is with blacks and whites and Asians and so forth and be real about what white privilege is and what oppression of African-Americans has been and accept it. I think there's a, a sense of denial because people think that, well, it happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago. It doesn't relate to me. But there are ongoing issues issues that are directly linked to slavery, for example, or concentration camps or anything else. And the fact that it's in the past and we try to ignore it is not going to help us. There has to be an open dialogue. There has to be a very direct intent on finding solutions that are going to be impactful and to help us move forward. Otherwise, we're just going to keep repeating these cycles. These crisis situations are going to keep happening. The shootings, the oppression, the police relationships that are deteriorating within African-American communities, issues that are happening with transgender violence and violence against Asians in this case in the last year. It's an ongoing dilemma that we have to really put our arms around. And it starts with, I think, just a basic conversation of honesty and deliberate results. I think that's very wise counsel. There was a quote I used when uh, there was the Asian hate crime in Georgia. Uh, it was a quote from H.G. Wells, which is, history is a race between education and catastrophe. You know, you've got to confront the reality before you can actually have any progress. And I think that's a good starting point and maybe an ending point. Any last messages for our listeners? This has been really great to have a wide-ranging conversation on these topics at this point in time. Well, yeah, I, I, again, I think as it relates to the topic we just addressed, I think that the divisions that we have and we're experiencing, again, what we're seeing now, are they're starting to spread and expand. And I think it's all driven by fear and distrust. I think we can figure out a way to get past it, and I hope we do, because we're repeating all of these things over and over again. They subside for a little while, and we don't do anything about it because we think they're gone, and then they pop back up again when something else happens. So I think we we really need to have real conversations about that. But in terms of, I think, what we've been discussing, just the workplace in general, enjoying the workplace, I think we really need to find a way to, as a group of people within these small confines of organizations, figure out a way to have fun with each other, appreciate each other and what we bring to the table and enjoy what we do. And also spend some time in developing yourselves and being happy with who you are and where you work. Create spaces where you can laugh and enjoy and find peace 
and manage your stress. And that may require you to step away a little bit, do some meditation or yoga or exercise. But ultimately, I think for us, we have to be able to lower our guards, reach out to the people around us, figure out a way to work together to advance ourselves within our organization and as an organization overall, and share the joys and pains that we all have so that we can all kind of work together towards a common goal of success for us. And I think if we do it at this level, it ultimately bleeds up to the country level so that we can find those solutions overall as a country. I think it's a great message. It's still a human, the human world. No question. And let's be better humans as a start. <laughs> that's a more simpler way of saying it than I no, did. No, no, but I, yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> no. Just I, better I, humans. So yeah, I think that's a great that's a great way to close here. Dean Wilbon, it's been such a great experience with you on this journey today. Just this short time together. I look forward to seeing you on campus pretty soon. And uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Alex. If you're looking for ways to transform your work and create more joy, subscribe to Joy at Work wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding joy at work. Share on social media with the hashtag joy at work. If you have questions you'd like us to answer this season, please email us at joy at Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find their way forward during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joy at work. And if you enjoyed this show, please check out the other shows in the Carney Podcast Network, including A World Transformed, Reimagining the Future, hosted by my colleague, Paul Odessina. It's a fascinating look at how our current crisis will propel us into a new reality. And on Inside the Mind, Carney's consumer practice leaders uncover how and why people shop today. What does our new consumer behavior mean for the future of the retail and e-commerce industry?